reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 14, verse 5 to 31. When the king of Egypt was told that the people, of, the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials ch changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihathoroth, opposite Baal Zephron. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the, de the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get in glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel, Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flow flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians 
And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Good afternoon. It's always nice to have free advertising for your honey. <laughs> no such bad thing as bad publicity. <clears throat> that was good. Um, it's great for me to be here. Um, greetings from Christchurch Somerset West. I was preaching there this morning. It was great to see some of the uh, familiar faces of the place that not only planted uh, Vodakluf, but also sent me to go and study. So we've got, there are so many connections between us that it was a real joy for me to be there and they send their regards. Um, <clears throat> we come to the end of this year's um, journey through Exodus. And what a journey. Um, if, if ever there was an event in the Bible that I would love to have been part of, it is the, it is the crossing of the Red Sea. If it wasn't for the murderous Egyptians that were chasing the Israelites, it would have been the ultimate sort of aquarium experience, don't you think? Two walls of water on both sides. The name would have been already chosen, you know, two oceans, aquarium. It's just, it's perfect. It must have been wonderful. But it's also very hard to overstate um, the importance of the crossing of the Red Sea in biblical terms. In the Old Testament alone, there's 25 direct references to the crossing of the Red Sea and numerous allusions to it. Even in the New Testament, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea is, is used in some way to describe either faith or what we've been saved from. For example, in Hebrews 11:29, the writer of the Hebrews says, it was by faith that the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So the crossing of the Red Sea is really a picture of how God redeems his people and how he saves them. The event of the crossing of the Red Sea is therefore very important in shaping our theology, shaping our understanding of what it means to be redeemed, to, to be saved. So we are going to ha learn four lessons from um, the crossing of the Red Sea of what it means to be saved. And these are the four lessons. What is God's mission? In redemption, what we are redeemed from, how we are redeemed, and why we are redeemed. Those four things we are going to look at. So let's look at the first one, God's mission in redemption. It's worth pointing out that the Israelites learned something of God's salvation very early on uh, in this chapter. There's something strange, something odd about our journey with God. Okay. 
that, that leaders are sometimes dumbfounded. And in verses 1 and 2, we find that, that this, is the, this happened also to the Israelites. Chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now these words, tell the Israelites to turn back, must have left, the, left them speechless. Turning back seems ludicrous, don't you think? And turning back south instead of north to where the promised land was didn't, even, didn't make even less sense. Because turning south or turning north uh, led to the promised land, turning south had very specific directions. And those specific directions led them to a very particular place. And that place was against the Red Sea. It was a trap. They were, it was a dead end. They didn't... Un uh, the thing is, it's interesting, they didn't end up there because they did not understand God's directions. They got there because they understood God's directions. Maybe you can relate to the oddness of the journey with God since you became a Christian. I, I guess the Israelites expected to walk straight out of the promised land and straight, or straight into the promised land. And many of us expected to walk also into a Christian sort of land of milk and honey after our conversion, or you know, instead we walked into some dead ends, um, some muddy waters that life throws us into. But the question is, why did God do this for the Israelites? Why in this story did he not take them the, the obvious highway? Why make this detour? In chapter 14, verse 3, it says, it helps us to try and get the answer. Verse four, uh, 3 and 4. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all of his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did that. This story is not about how Israel fled out of Egypt. It is about how God rescued, redeemed, saved the people from slavery and bondage. Can you hear the difference? The detour in Israel's journey ensured that the word got out and that the world got to know who the Lord is, and that he saved Israel. The story is told in such a way that the Lord is the prime mover. He is the unmistakable hero in this story. The story ensures that God received the most possible glory. So in retelling our own salvation stories, maybe it's just a, a good thing to remember we tell our own salvation stories to people, and you should be ready to do that, in two minutes or in 20, make sure that God is the hero of your story. 
So that's the first thing that we learn from God's mission of why he redeemed Israel is because he will get the glory. Point number two, the second lesson about redemption is what we are redeemed from. Now for Israel, the obvious thing that they were redeemed from is physical bondage from Egypt, right? So the first and obvious thing is <coughs> that they were bond slaves. In chapter 14, verse 5, it says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and we have lost their services. Services is a very polite way of saying very oppressed bond slaves. It's almost like you, you lost your cleaning service or something. In freeing the Israelites, God saved them from physical bondage and slavery. They also needed to be redeemed from the mentality of being a slave. Let me explain. When Renee read that passage, she said, at some point the Israelites looked up and they saw the Egyptians coming down. And what happened when they saw the Egyptians coming down? Exodus 14, verse 11. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us uh, to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out in Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. If you are going to look for those words anywhere in Exodus, you won't find it. It sounds like they've made up that story right on the spot. They were so afraid when they saw the Egyptians coming that their whole mentality, they've been in, remember, they've been in slavery for 400 years. They see Pharaoh, they bow. They see an Egyptian, they, are, they fear. And they are obedient on the spot. That's what you do. So immediately when they see the Pharaohs coming, that mentality of slavery kicks in. And one of the things that God needs to save them from is the thinking, I am still a slave. They are free. So what we see here is that when, when God saves Israel, their salvation, their redemption is multi-layered. On the one hand, they are saved from physical bondage. They are not free anymore. But also, they needed to be freed from thinking that they are slaves. So what is the application? As Christians, also our salvation, our redemption, is multi-layered. We also are saved from the bondage of numerous things. Firstly, and obviously, we were in bondage to the law. Now, why the law? We were under guilt before we knew Christ. We were under guilt and condemnation, right? If you remember some of the, the things that Paul says in Rome. We did not love God uh, with our whole being. We didn't love our neighbor as ourselves before we knew Christ. We were under God's wrath, right? 
But through Jesus, we are redeemed. There is no more condemnation. That is what Romans 8 verse 1 says. And Romans 6 says the following, Sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. We are free from the law, the Bible says, but we are not always free from the mentality of thinking and doing and living as if we are not under the law. Objectively, in our minds, you and I would know I'm free from the law. That doesn't apply to me anymore. But come Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, we approach God and what do we offer Him that proves that we are right with Him? Oftentimes, it's a list of things that we've done. It's a list of things that we haven't done. Our mentality is still, I have to submit to, I have to do a list of things that the law requires, even it's my own law. I am not yet free from that thinking. Even though verbally we can attest, I am free from the law. The next thing that we are freed from, the Bible teaches us that we as Christians are in bondage to our sin nature. Our sin nature, we are in bondage to that. Again, Romans 6, it says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Sin is a slave driver. I don't know how many of you know that. He won't rest until you serve him and all of his evil desires. After you've become a Christian, you don't walk into the promised land, as I said, of you know, holiness and perfect living in Christ. That's not how it works. Sin does not go away right away when you become a Christian. Even after you've received Christ and Christ accepts you, in your mind, you know that he has removed that guilt, Right? but you are still tremendously in bondage to sin. We still have to work continuously, I think you know, to fight the sin that we have been living under for so long. And the last thing that we can think of that we are saved from as Christians, are redeemed from, is we are redeemed and saved from the bondage to idols. The Bible talks a lot about idols in our lives. If you love anything more than God, even though you believe in God, if there is anything in your life that is more important to your significance and your security than God, that is an idol. That could be your children. That could be your career. That could be your looks, your talents. Something that you go to to find security there. Something that you go to to say, this is why I am significant. If there's anything that's larger than God, that's an idol. And we need to be freed from that. In Israel's mind, Pharaoh was no longer their master, right? They know. He said, go. But then the Pharaoh wanted them back. He realized, oh my goodness, we've lost our slaves. I want them back. And that's exactly what an idol does. You may repent of your idol. You may say, you know, I'm going to ditch the importance of my career or my money or my looks or my talent. I'm going to ditch that. I want God to be more important. And you repent of that. 
But that idol is not happy with that. <laughs> he wants you back. And continuously we have to be freed from that kind of bondage. And that is what God has freed us from. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses an illustration to drive this particular point home. He says that we as Christians are like slaves who lived in the southern United States before the, what he calls, Emancipation Proclamation. Bear with me. That is the declaration that all black people are no longer slaves, they are free men. Can you remember? Have you heard anything about that? That kind of history in the United States many years ago. Before the, pro the proclamation, we, if we are black people in, in the south of Eng um, um, the United States, we couldn't vote. We had no power. Uh, if somebody wanted to beat us up or kill us, you know, we would be at their mercy. We didn't have any rights. If we walk into a town and a white guy is shouting at us, giving us orders, being rude, we tremble, we fear, and we don't know. We don't say anything. We just obey. We are frightened. Now imagine it's 10 years later, the Emancipation Proclamation has been given, black people are free, we are free, we've got rights. And we walk into town and a white person starts yelling at us again, even though we know in our heads, hey, I've got some rights here, our default is, I'm still acting scared. And I'm still acting as a slave. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that is the condition of every Christian and that needs to be redeemed. You know, but you don't know. You know that you've been saved from slavery to sin, that you should be free. But every now and then we find that our hearts are not free. Not free yet, but it can be. So salvation is about being freed from bondage, and it's multi-layered. Luckily, Christ has not just saved us from one thing. Aren't we glad about that? The depth of his salvation, we are going to take a lifetime to come free. But it's there, it's available. So that brings us to the third lesson of our salvation. How are we redeemed? How are we redeemed? The Israelites were saved by grace. When last did you hear that in an Old Testament sermon? Let me show you why I say that. The Red Sea story is not about what the Israelites were being saved. It's not just what the Israelites have been saved out of. It's bondage, you know, with all of these layers, as we just said. But also how they get out by crossing over by grace. Here's how Moses replied. The Israelites looked up, saw the Pharaoh, replied in, shouted out to Moses in fear, and this is what Moses replied to them. In chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Very famous answer. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Stand still, Israel. God is going to do the fighting for you. Watch. You can't do it. Don't try. God is going to do the whole thing. It's by grace that they can move through the Red Sea. It's by grace that they were saved. When Moses says to, in chapter 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, you need only be still. It sounds a lot like Romans. Romans 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work for his salvation, the one who is still, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. The New Testament says exactly the same thing. Be still. It means not to look at your own works and try to uh, you know, achieve your own salvation. So that's the principle of grace. God saves by grace. But God is giving you a complete salvation or a deliverance based not only on your works, but on Christ's work. So the Exodus story illustrates how that grace works. Not only that he saves by grace, but how grace operates. Listen carefully. It works by Israel crossing over. That's how it works. The one minute they were on the one side, they were in a territory of death. They were very close to their previous master, a very oppressive master. They were under a death sentence, really. But the minute the Israelites crossed over, they crossed over from death to life. They crossed over from being under condemnation on this side to the sentence of freedom. That is how grace works in a Christian's life as well. The one minute you are, as the Bible says, dead in your sinful behavior, and the next minute you crossed over and you are alive. You are alive in Christ. That's how grace works. You, you move, you, you cross over. Now, either you are in the kingdom of darkness, as Colossians says, or you are in the kingdom of the Son of God. And grace says there is no process of being saved. There's no, for two or three or four years, you have to say five prayers a day. Or for ten years long, you have to meditate and become some kind of guru uh, in the great nothingness. God made it possible for the Israelites to cross over, and the moment that they crossed over, they were free. In John 5, verse 24, it says this. Listen carefully to the words. He uses Red Sea terminology. John 5, verse 24, Jesus is speaking. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. If you've put your trust in Christ, 
you can be sure that that instant you've done that, that you've put your faith in Christ, you've crossed over. So if anyone asks you, are you really a Christian? And you say, well, I think so. Then you still don't understand how grace works. If you're trusted in Christ as your Savior, you have crossed over from death to life immediately. Now, some people may object to that, and they said, you know, they think back to the time when they have given their life to Christ, and they said, I'm not sure I had enough faith. I'm not sure I had enough faith to actually cross over. And luckily, our passage in the Red Sea also speaks to that. It says something about that in chapter 14, verse 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on the left. Now the Israelites crossed over, but that doesn't mean that they all crossed over with the same amount of faith. I am pretty sure that there were some of them that crossed over and said something like, you know, they were marveling. <laughs> wow! Eat your heart out, Egypt. You know, the Lord is fighting for us. This is fantastic. Look at what God is doing for us. And I'm also sure some of them walked through, looked at those walls and said, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. But they were all freed equally. They were all delivered equally. Why? Because it's not about the amount or the quantity of your faith. It's about who you put your faith into. It's the God that you put your faith in. The one who promised. The one who redeems. The one who will fight for you. Everything about this text, I hope you see, shouts out, grace, grace, grace. You are saved. You will cross over Israel. You will cross over Christian by grace. The next lesson is why can we be redeemed? Why can we be redeemed? The Egyptians tried to cross over. Did you notice in the story? Israel crossed over, but the Egyptians also tried to cross over, and they were shattered on their way. The Israelites got over safely. Why? Well, for one, I think, the obvious answer for one is that Israel was God's chosen people. And they weren't chosen because they were smarter or grander. In fact, if you think that, then you haven't read the rest of the Old Testament. Israel was as foolish as any Egyptian. They just didn't have the power at that time to be as cruel as the Egyptians, but they certainly had the same kind of heart. They weren't chosen because they had a great heart. They were chosen because God in His mercy chose them. That's the one reason. The other reason is that in contrast to the Egyptians, the Israelites had a mediator. In Exodus 14, 15, 
God says to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Now, Moses wasn't crying out. The Israelites were crying out because Pharaoh was coming. But Moses was one man who was representing Israel to God, and he was also representing God to Israel. He was a man in the middle. Timothy Keller says, he was so identified with the people that God rebuked him for their sin, and he was so identified with God that he was a vehicle for God's saving power. But even though Moses was a very remarkable mediator, he was a sinful mediator. He wasn't perfect. Moses the mediator was a man who sinned and God punished him by not allowing him, if you remember the story right, not allowing him into the promised land. Stood on the border. He was a great mediator, but ultimately he was only a shadow of the mediator that were to come. A shadow of the mediator that would break us out of our bondage, every tongue and tribe and nation. The mediator, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we don't have a mediator who um, is fully man and only close to God, like Moses. In Jesus Christ, we have a, a mediator who is fully human and fully God. Not only that, we don't have a mediator whom God has ever had to rebuke. He was a man with no sin. Now at one point, if you remember the golden calf many years later, the golden calf incident happened and Moses, the mediator, went to God and said to God, well, God said to him, listen, I'm done with these people, they are stiff-necked. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses came to him and said, in Exodus 32, verse 31, So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. Please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. God, in his mercy, did not blot out Moses. But with our mediator, Jesus Christ, he did blot him out. When he hung on the cross, Jesus had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the ultimate mediator. And it's why you and I can cross over by grace, from bondage to child of God, from slavery to freedom, from darkness to light. And that's why all the other things that we were talking about today can become true. And it's possible. It's, it's why we can be brought out of bondage. It's why we can keep going back to Jesus' salvation to deal with the layer after layer after layer of bondage that we find ourselves in. His grace is always sufficient for the next layer. It is the reason why salvation brings God the ultimate glory. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we want to honor you. We want to glorify you. We want to shout, holy, holy is the Lord, because the Red Sea is spectacular. What you've done there is, is epic. How you've redeemed Israel. It's just such a show of your power. But how we, we know that that was even just that was just a shadow, a pointing towards the great salvation that you have made possible in Christ. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ has died for us. Thank you that he is the ultimate mediator. Thank you that we can pray that continually you redeem us from the layers and layers of bondage we find ourselves in. But thank you that your grace is always sufficient. Help us to speak that, to live that, to, to worship that. Thank you for your grace in Exodus. Thank you for your grace in Somerset West. In Jesus' name, amen.